Welcome to the Renewal Church Podcast. We exist so that people will be made new in Jesus, grow in Jesus, and be released into the world for Jesus. We pray that God will bless you today with the truth of His Word. I'm excited. We're, we're hitting a transition point in the book of Colossians. Um, it's going to start getting very practical um, from here on out. So all you practical folks, um, you're going to enjoy the next couple weeks. So Colossians chapter 3, we're actually going to cover 17 verses today. We'll not do them justice. Um, I told someone last week, we probably could have made this series twice as long as we did. So we're going to do our best to cover as much as we can uh, today out of the first 17 verses. So Colossians 3, verses one through 17. Paul says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if One has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Well, like I mentioned, we are at a major pivot point in the book of Colossians. Paul starts off verse 1, and he says a very important little word, if, if you have been raised with Christ. It's important to note that Paul is talking to believers here, okay? He's talking to Believers here, and it's it's important to understand that because Paul is about to list, as we just read, a bunch of activities, activities that the Christian should do, and activities that the Christian should not do. And if we aren't careful, then we will read these activities as if these are a list of things that we do in order to gain Christ, rather than uh, think of this list as a list of things that the Christian does because of what Christ has already done. That's a subtle but important difference, because we have to remember what Paul just told them, what we talked about 
last week. At the end of chapter two, Paul denounced the idea of legalism, that I must do certain things or have certain experiences in order to have fellowship with God, that I can have access to Christ because of some sort of effort for myself or some sort of experience that I've had. And so what Paul just told them is that you don't get access to Christ by doing certain things for Christ. You have access to Christ already because of what he has done. You are raised with him. Therefore, here are the things that the person who has been raised with Christ does. And here's the deal. I wonder, as I read through these verses, um, I, I wonder as I read through those verses if there were portions of it where maybe you began to feel a little bit uneasy. I know when I studied this last week and I was like, <clears throat> I have to teach on this? <laughs> what? <laughs> um, I just wonder if there are some of us in here that you read sexual immorality or impurity and you went, uh-oh, I came today. Or if you read obscene talk from your mouth and you went, should have slept in today. Here's my expectation of what is going to happen. Here's what I've been praying that God would do. My expectation is that some of us today are going to be convicted by the Holy Spirit, according to the word of God, on some things that you are doing right now, or maybe some things you aren't doing. And in fact, if any of us walk away from today and attempt to say, yeah, none of this really applies to me, then I'm going to go ahead and say that you weren't paying attention. Um, I expect that many of us are going to leave this place with a conviction that either we need to be doing some things or we need to stop doing some things. Maybe both. But we have to be careful because what happens so many times when Christians start talking about changing our behavior is we fall into the subtle lie that I need to change my behavior so that I can prove that I'm a Christian. Prove to God prove to others, prove to myself, but that's a backwards, human-centered, man-centered way of thinking about the call of Christ on our lives. It's not I do things so that I can be in fellowship with God. It's not I change my behavior so I can get access to God. You already have access through Jesus. You are already, if you have been raised with Christ, you are already saved by grace. Therefore, your behavior changes. You're different. You're transformed. So we have to, before we go through the list, we have to make sure we get the order right. God has saved you. You belong to him. Therefore, you look different. You act different. You look like him. Does that make sense? And here's the other thing that's important to mention. If as I was reading this text, and you felt that punch in the gut, or maybe you felt that immediate feeling of, ooh, I don't want to talk about this. Maybe you felt uncomfortable because Paul mentioned something that either you are doing or you aren't doing. If that's you, and I'm going to guess that that is most of us, if that's you, that's a gift from the Spirit. That's gift. That's evidence that God is at work within you. I mean, within you. Name one person in the Bible who did not have moments where they struggled with the reality that they fell short. Abraham, Moses, David, Isaiah, Peter, Paul. We all fall short. We all have moments in our lives where it feels like we're on a mountaintop, right? 
where, where it feels like, man, I feel so close to God. I'm in the word. I'm praying. I'm not doubting at all. There, I have so much joy. But then there are also these moments where we have to say, God, I'm not living according to the identity that you purchased for me where we have given ourselves over to lesser things and living for those lesser things has made God feel distant. We feel that rebellious temptation in our souls where we doubt if God really loves us, where we feel as though something is off. We feel disconnected. This list that Paul gives is not something that we use to prove that we love God. This list demonstrates a life of the one who knows that they are loved by God. And they are confident in that. That Christ purchased your life when he said you. Corinthians says that you were bought with a price. That price was his blood. It was his sacrifice. You are already his, therefore your life is lived for him. The, the one who knows and believes that they are loved by Christ will love what he hates. I mean, sorry, love what he loves and hate what he hates. It doesn't mean we're perfect, and we have to understand that too. And we're going to talk about this. doesn't mean that we're perfect, but we strive to be like the perfect one. Okay? So maybe the question isn't, have I done or not done these certain things? Maybe that's not the most important question. Maybe the bigger and better question, perhaps, is, is there a seriousness in my life to put to death and to put on? Is there a seriousness in my life about sin? And is there a seriousness in my life about holiness? Do I care about these things? You are going to fail. But do you care to be serious about sin? And do you care to be serious about holiness? So, he says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So, think of this text this way. Once you have been justified by God through the blood of Jesus, once you have been justified, only then can sanctification happen. Okay? This painful and beautiful process of God making you like him, this process where he begins to root the practice of sin out of your life, that begins after justification. It's not sanctification, then justification. It's not I become holy and therefore I am justified. It's God saves me and then he begins the process of making me like him. So Paul says, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. I love this. Paul has spent the first half of this letter doing what? He's just been showing us who Christ is. He's just been showing us who Christ is. And, and think about it. What has he said about Christ? He said a lot. He, he has said that he has transferred us from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved son, that Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation, that Christ created all things, Jesus was before all things, that in Jesus all things hold together that Jesus is the firstborn of the dead, that he is preeminent, that all the fullness of God dwelled in Jesus. He says that we are to be taken captive by Christ, that we have been filled 
in him, that we are made alive in him, that he canceled our record of debt by nailing it to the cross. And here's the deal. If you believe all of those things, then you can have confidence that you are raised with Christ. And if you are raised with Christ, then you seek the things that are above. If you are raised with Christ, you seek the things that are above. The most normal thing for the Christ follower to do is to seek Christ. It would be weird if I showed up in a Rangers jersey. Right? Those of you who know me, I lost a bet to, to Jen up there over the, on the play, during, around the playoffs. I know I'm not supposed to be making bets. It wasn't for money. Um, but he, 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 and at some point, I have to wear a Rangers jersey to do the welcome. Um, and that's going to be a weird Sunday. Why? Because that's not who I am. I'm an Astros fan, cheater or not. I am an Astros fan, so I wear Astros things. It's weird when the Christian doesn't seek Christ. It's weird. That's not who you are. Your identity is in Christ. And so it's weird when you reject him. You know what's really cool? It it talks about uh, Jesus being seated at the right hand of God. Being seated at the right hand of God is the place of providence, that God the Son is seated as king and ruler over all things. And you know what's really cool about this? Ephesians 2 tells us that we are seated with him. That's where we belong. I'll read it, Ephesians 2, 4. It says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Think about that. Your place is to be seated at the right hand of the throne of God with Jesus because he placed you there. We have been raised with Christ. There is this beautiful but somewhat difficult tension for the Christian. On one hand, we're here. We experience the battle of the flesh. We are in this world with all of its suffering, with all of its pain, with all of its idols, with all of its temptations. Yet on the other hand, we don't belong to this world at all. We belong to the kingdom of the Son. We, We have the Holy Spirit in us. We have been made new. We have been given new eyes to see. And so Paul says, set your mind, your your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on this earth. What do you set your mind on? What thoughts, what ideas, what pursuits of joy, what captivates your mind? Do you set your mind on the things of this world? Really, what did you think about this past week? What consumed your mind? And here's the question. Why why does he tell us not to set our mind on the things of the world? Well, he tells us in verse 3, you have died. You have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. Remember Colossians 2.12, where Paul had earlier told them, Hey, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. I also think of Romans 6, uh, starting in verse 1, it should be on the screen, uh, where Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? You're just going to keep on sinning because you think God's going to forgive you? He's going to forgive you over and over and over, so it's no big deal? 
What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized in the Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried. Therefore, uh, we were buried, therefore, with him in baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. When Christ died, he took our sin with him. We were buried with him. That old life is gone. And he rose from the grave. And so did we. Born anew. Born to walk in the newness of life that Christ has given us. And then he says that your life is hidden in Christ. It's interesting. So we've been raised. We have died. And now he says our lives are hidden. I think what Paul is saying here is that your real life, not, not just the physical one here on earth, the one where you go to work, raise kids, watch TV, Chick-fil-A. I think he's saying, no, your real life, it is hidden with Christ. You can't see it. You can't see it. But in Christ, it awaits for you. I think that's why in chapter 1, verse 5, he says that there is hope laid up for you in heaven, that Christ has secured a life for you in eternity, and he holds on to it. That promise is safe in his hands. It's hidden. The world doesn't see it. Sometimes you can't even see it. But your real life, it is hidden and secure in Christ. We hold on to that promise. I think that's why he says in verse 4, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That there will be a day when Christ will appear. Think about that. There will be a day when Christ will appear when the new heaven and the new earth will come down and the promise is that on that day, you will be with him in glory. How would your life, how would your thinking change if you lived as if your life was hidden in Christ? That my acceptance, my freedom, my affections are not driven by this life, but my acceptance, my freedom, my affections, my ambitions is driven by the life that Christ has for me. Remember the if in verse one. If you have been raised with Christ. So let me ask you, have you? Thank you, Pam, I can always count on you. But for everybody else, have you? Have you been, <laughs> have you been raised with him? So here's the next question. Do you set your mind on the things that are above? Do you believe that your life is hidden in Christ? Because here's the deal. If, you answer, if your answer is no to those questions, then you need to know that the rest of what we're going to talk about doesn't apply to you. At least not yet. The rest of this text is focused on the identity of the Christian. What does the person who has been raised, the person who has died, the one whose life is hidden in Christ, what does that person look like? And Paul's going to give us two main instructions here. He's going to say, put to death and put on. And if you did not answer yes to those questions, then the reality is you don't have the ability to put to death. You don't have the ability to put on. You're still a slave to sin. 
You're, you're still a slave to sin. Your life is not hidden in Christ. But for those of you who did answer yes, Pam, the expectation is that you are putting to death and that you are putting on. But here's the question I wrestled with all week. Why is it so hard to do that? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You read these lists, put to death this, put on this. Why is that so difficult for me to do? Why is that so difficult for us to do? Why is it so difficult for us to put to death sin and to put on the things of Christ? It should be easy for us, right? It should be easy for us to hate sin and put it to death. But, but there are some days when it feels like it's actually sin, not Christ that has power over me. I can't be the only one who feels that way. So before we jump into the list, I want to dive into that idea a little bit more because we need a helpful lens on how we should think about these lists that we're about to read. So if you have your Bible, go with me to Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 16. Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 16. Um, in this text, we have two opposing forces, okay? So let me read it to you. Galatians 5, 16. I think it will also be on the screen. Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So like I said, in this text, we have two opposing forces. One is the Holy Spirit that is sealed in your soul when God saved you. The other is your flesh. Now, we have to define what we mean by flesh. Okay, so the flesh, what Paul's talking about here, is that is exists uh, in that season of time between salvation and glorification. I know those are big words. Basically, when God chose to save you and when you appear in glory, sanctification fully complete, like God enjoying him in all his splendor. So that time between salvation and glorification, okay? The moment we live in now, between those two things, between salvation and uh, being perfect in glory, is when we feel the weight of the battle between the flesh and the spirit. The flesh is that part of you that does not want Christ. It wants to indulge in the sins around you. It's those areas of your heart and mind that still desire the things that are not of God, the things that you have not completely surrendered to God. And those things, they are at war right now. We have to think about this concept. The spirit and the flesh are at war right now. Paul says they are opposed to each other, that they have different goals. They want different things for your mind. They want different things for your body. They want different things for your heart. In this moment, even while I am talking, they are waging war. The flesh wants you to check out or to judge, right? It wants you to focus on and think on anything but the word of God that is being preached. Art wants you to judge the messenger, just saying, instead of listening to the actual message, like maybe you think I'm too young, 
Maybe you don't like my shirt. Maybe it's got some wrinkles in it because I bent down and got some wrinkles in it. I mean, what can I say, right? Maybe you think that I'm saying um too much, right? Or maybe you're distracted by the lighting or you don't like the place that you're sitting in. And so the flesh is kind of putting into your mind all the things to keep you distracted from the actual word of God. The flesh wants you to doubt if you really belong here. The flesh wants you to have fear. God, if I really confront these things that Paul mentions, people are here going to judge me. They won't accept me anymore. God, I've done too much. There's no way that you could actually forgive me. I, I, I can never be free of that sin. Flesh wants to lead you away. The Spirit wants you to hear God's words and to have your affections stirred. The flesh wants to heal you by the Word of God. I mean, the Spirit wants to heal you by the Word of God. The, the Spirit wants to reveal to you the places where you are running from God. And in this moment, they are battling. And the first, things, first thing that we have to do as followers of Christ is acknowledge that that is happening. We have to acknowledge that it is happening, that in your heart right now, two opposing forces are battling it out, and that will be the case until you enter glory. There are seasons when that battle will feel small, but the voice of the Spirit is so much louder than the voice of the flesh that you can identify the lies easily. No, I'm not going to believe that. I'm not going to do that. I, think that Je- I know that Jesus is better, that I live in his grace. You, you can't tempt me there. And then there are seasons where it feels like you're getting hit by a sledgehammer. And you are, you, you are still, even though you've been freed, you are a slave to sin. Where temptation feels so strong, circumstances seem too big, that there are some victories that are easily won, and there are some battles that are barely won, and some battles with the flesh will be lost. I remember about 10 years ago, I was the college pastor at First Baptist Belton, um, down on Main Street, and uh, we would play pickup basketball. I know I don't look it, but I've got some skills, y'all. Um, we would play pick, pickup basketball once or twice a week, and we saw it as an outreach opportunity. These guys would come into the church that otherwise would never step foot um, in, in the church. And if, and if you know me, so the people that know me know this, um, then you know that one of the ways my flesh really expresses itself its sinfulness, in particular, is in my competitiveness, okay? At the root of, <laughs> thanks, David, uh, at the root of it uh, is this arrogance and pride that I want to be the best, and specifically, I want your praise uh, when you see how good I am at something. And so we're playing this basketball game, and I've got the ball at the top of the key, which is the three-point line, um, and I go to my right to drive towards the basket, and this short little dude, he was shorter than me, y'all. This short little dude, he picked the ball from me, which means he stole it. He stole it, and I'm just standing there like this. And then I turn around, and I'm just watching this little bitty guy go up and do a little layup. And you know what I did? I slammed my hands on the ground, and I yelled a cuss word, a bad word. And I looked up, and I saw Kevin Brown staring right at me. You remember this? Yep. <laughs> I'm a pastor at this church, y'all. Kevin had just came back from uh, another country uh, as a missionary, and he's just staring me right in the eyes. 
And I instantly knew that I had given myself over to the flesh. I felt this wave of shame come over me. See, in that moment, the flesh made a promise to me. It made a promise. It said, if you do this, you'll feel better. Hey, things didn't go your way. If you react in anger, it will make you feel better for a moment. If you say this word with your mouth, it will bring you a moment of satisfaction. See, the spirit and the flesh are both making the same promise, but only one can deliver. The promise is freedom. In Christ, the promise is, hey, enjoy me. Worship me. I created you. I saved you. Enjoy me. Love me. And you're going to have peace. You're going to have freedom. But here's the thing. The, The flesh is making the exact same promise. You see it in Genesis 3. The flesh is making the same promise. You will have satisfaction if you do this. Just keep on sinning. It's not a big deal. God's going to forgive you later. And of those things, Paul says, man, you've got to put it to death. Notice the aggressive nature of what Paul says. Put it to death. Kill it. If it exists in your risen life in Christ, then destroy it. Put it to death. It reminds me of what Jesus said in Matthew 5.30, where he says, and if your right hand causes you to sin, what does he say? Cut it off. Throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your, for your whole body to go into hell. The, the point here is that as born-again believers in Christ, we should take very seriously the sin in our lives. And, and we also, side note here, we have to be careful that we're not guilty of selective holiness. So selective holiness is the idea that I emphasize my righteousness in one area, which then makes me feel like I have the right to then ignore other areas of my life where I am indulging in sin. So say you don't have an issue with sexual immorality, having sex outside of marriage, looking at pornography, lustful thoughts. Like, that's not a struggle for you. You've never struggled with that. But man, are you angry. You're just so mad. Or the opposite can be true. You don't have a problem with anger. You're well-liked. You treat everyone with kindness. You're gentle and loving towards your spouse, your kids, your friends. You'll do whatever you can to do to help somebody else. But when no one else is around in the dark of night, your lustful thoughts take over. And what happens is we can easily justify one sin by clinging onto the things that we do well. Well, man, I don't have pride and anger issues, but you're completely ignoring what you do in the dark of night. Or, hey, I don't look and entertain certain things, but man, are you a jerk. (laughs) So what we can't do is have selective holiness here. You have to put to death all of it and put on all of it. What's interesting about verses 6 through 17, in the Greek, so in the Greek, there's something called the imperative, um, and there's something called the indicative, okay? In the Greek, verses 6 through 17 are all in the imperative mood where the first two chapters are on the indicative. So to write something, I know this is super nerdy, but come on, this is the most fun part. Uh, To write something in the indicative is to write a statement of fact, okay? So the first two chapters are all in the indicative mood, except for maybe one or two verses. So for by him, all things were, were created. Indicative, that's a fact. Jesus has canceled your record of debt. Indicative, it's already done, that, that's a fact. But these verses are in the imperative, which means that they're not done yet. 
Does that make sense? They're not done yet. It speaks to the reality that we live in the time of already but not yet. Christ has died. We have been forgiven. Those are statements of facts. But our growth is not done yet. God is not done working in us and molding us and shaping us. So we aren't going to have time to go through everything that Paul lists. But really, he's going to tackle two indulgences of the flesh, sex and anger. Sex and anger are two very powerful and prominent human impulses. In fact, if you go through Genesis, uh, you can see one or both of those things almost all throughout the book. It's interesting. When, when, Adam, and, uh, when Adam and Eve sin and break fellowship with God, what's the very next thing that happens? In Genesis 4, you get Cain and Abel. Cain feels offended by his brother, so he murders Abel. Seven generations pass, which is the number of completion in Scripture, and then it says uh, you get to Lamech. Lamech says, I have a sexual impulse that is stronger than one woman can handle. So he starts to take on multiple wives. Uh, a young man insults him, so he murders him. And you sin see a trend at the beginning of humanity, that when sin expresses itself in the human heart, you typically see some sort of sexual sin or some sort of anger. One of those two. You want to know if I'm telling the truth or if I'm just making this up? Open up social media today. What are you going to see? Sexual images and a lot of angry people. Not a lot has changed since Genesis. Several times in, in Paul's letter, he will lay out the gospel, and then the very next thing he will say is, okay, now let's talk about your sex life. That's what he does here. And in verse 5, he says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked, when you were living in them. So in verse 5, Paul seems to focus mainly on issues of sex and lust, even covetousness here, which is a broad word. Uh, most people understand this to mean covetousness in some sort of sexual manner. Uh, either having someone else, desiring someone else who's not yours, because really, no one belongs to you, everyone belongs to God. But the first issue that he addresses, the first practical issue that he addresses outside of the false teaching here, he addresses is sex and lust. It's interesting. So let's have the sex talk as a church, shall we? Always fun. First, I want to remind you that sex was God's idea. Thank you, Rich. <laughs> he came up with the idea. He gave you the tools for it, okay? When we hear the word sex, we often think of it as a bad word that we don't talk about in church. How many of you grew up in church and you never talked about this? And then you grow up and you're confused about what's right, what's wrong. Why don't why I shouldn't do this? Why shouldn't I do this? Sex is a gift from God. In the confines of a covenantal marriage, um, it is to be celebrated. It is a can be a source of joy and intimacy. And here's the deal, and we all know this. Sex and the images of sex are unbelievably powerful. Marketing companies know this. We all know this. Because of sin being introduced into the world, it has been distorted and distorted and distorted. The culture we live in now um, has taken sex and weaponized it to be this thing that God never intended for it to be. 
that sex is meant to be shared intimacy between a husband and a wife. It says, hey, I belong to you. We belong to one another. It's the place where a man and a woman can say to one another, I am all of yours, all the bad, all the good. You have all of me. I'm committed to you. And it belongs under a covenant before God. And it's in the commitment of a man and a woman that you, between a man and a woman that you find intimacy. Not driven by emotion or feeling, but a commitment that mirrors God's commitment to you. And what the flesh does is it says, hey, you don't need that covenant. You don't need that commitment. Engaging in sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage is trying to find satisfaction and pleasure outside of the design of God. It's drinking in sand and wondering why we're still thirsty. I mean, why do we have so many people in churches? Now, I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about us. Why do we have so many people in churches addicted to sexual things? And we feel like we have to hide it. I don't have the freedom to confess it. There's an issue there. We don't know how to talk about this. And so through sexual sin, the flesh flesh promises. It promises that something can be found in that act or in that feeling. Intimacy and satisfaction. And so let me say this. If that's you, if you are engaged in any kind of sexual activity, and it's all listed here. We don't need to go through them all. But if you are engaged in any sexual activity, sin, sexual, whatever, you need to know that you are being lied to. You are being lied to. Whatever that thing is that you want, it will not satisfy you. The promise that voice in your head is telling you is not going to lead you to freedom. It's going to lead you to destruction. If you are raised with Christ, you are a new person. You're new. Your sin has been buried. It's in the grave, and you have risen from that grave new, born again. There's a famous story about a theologian named Augustine who lived in the 300s. We don't actually know if this story is true or not, but but, um, Augustine was known as someone who was, how do I say this? He was not particularly disciplined in abstinence. I'll say it that way. Um, And so Christ saves him, and the story goes that at one point he returned to one of the cities that he used to live in, and a woman he knew from his former life came up to him and whispered in his ear, Augustine, it is I, to which he replied, yes, but it's no longer I. We have been saved by the grace of Christ, therefore we live in that grace. It's interesting, if you study the early church, one of the things that contributed to the growth of the church was how the church treated women and children. They didn't abuse them. They didn't exploit them. In a Roman society, the woman was an object for pleasure. But the Christian emphasized a marriage covenant. And in the safety of a marriage that was centered on Christ, women in that place flourished in the early church, women and children. And you can read in church history about how the Romans would look at the Christian church, and I'm paraphrasing here, and they would basically say, Hey, you're a little bit weird. (laughs) The way you do things is backward. But man, is your community flourishing. There's something different about you. And the early church would grow because so many people, especially women, would come to the Christians. They would be broken by sexual sin. And the Christian would say, let me tell you and show you who my Savior is. Let me tell you about Jesus. 
the forgiveness that's found in him, the new life that's found in him. Do you think the church grows if the life of the Christian looks just like the culture? No, that wouldn't make any sense. And so here's the question. Do you actually live according to the new self that has been purchased for you? Or are you still clinging to that old self that God has saved you from? Are you still settling on lesser things and rejecting the one who is better than all things? In verse 6, Paul says, On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Multiple times in the Bible, it will mention the wrath of God in the same sentence or section with sexual sin. I don't think I really need to say much more than that, to be honest. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. God hates it. He rages against it, not because he wants to punish you, because he knows it's a lie. Pursuing sexual sin, sexual things outside of what you were designed for, it will rob you of your joy. That's why he says you once walked in these when you were living in them. In verse 7, he says you used to live in these, but you don't anymore. That you died. You know what? That shame is gone. The shame that you feel when you did that thing that you never thought you would do. That shame is gone. That condemnation is gone. That person that you were is gone because Christ has saved you. There is therefore no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. So if you're someone who says, hey, I'm not going to be accepted. If I come in repentance and ask for forgiveness and I confess my sin, you need to hear, man, if, if you come in repentance and you ask God, not God for forgiveness, there is no condemnation for you. Christ has forgiven you. Very quickly, let me just talk about verse 8. He says, now we must put on Put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Let, let me just say this about the, these things that Paul mentions. I couldn't really think of anything eloquent to say, so I just wrote down, why? Why are you so angry? Why? Why do you let yourself say those words? Why do you let those words come out of your mouth? What are you gaining from it? And you know what? You might have something to be angry about. Like, life is really hard sometimes. You might have something to be angry about, but honestly, you're not angry, you're hurt. You're hurt. And hurt people hurt people. You might have a worldly reason to say those words, but do you really, do you honestly want to live according to that old you? That old you that rebelled against God, that lived according to the flesh, the old you that was never satisfied, the old self is dead, you are made new in Christ. That's why he says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. He says, he says you, are, you are chosen, you are holy, you, you are loved, and the chosen, holy, and loved person. They put on kindness. They put on humility. They put on meekness. They put on patience. He says, he says, the chosen, the holy, the loved one, and they bear with one another. They walk with one another in these things. 
He says the word of Christ dwells within us, that we teach it to one another. We admonish one another. In humility, we're, we're willing to hear that admonishing. That the chosen, the holy, and the beloved, they sing songs together. This is, this is what we do as the church. Uh, last Wednesday, I, I went over to my in-law's house. One of my nephew's birthday was Thursday. The next day, he was turning four. And so I asked him, I said, hey, what are you going to do for your birthday? And his face lit up with so much joy. And he said, I'm going on a treasure hunt. I was like, okay. And, and all night, he just kept asking the same question. Can we go on a treasure hunt now? Can we go on a treasure hunt now? Can we go on a treasure hunt now? And then he'd start crying. I want to go on a treasure hunt. Just over and over. And all he could think about was the treasure hunt. And it made me think of Matthew 13, 44, where Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found, which a man found and covered up, then in his joy, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. When we think about this section, the put on section, the Christian isn't searching for treasure anymore. The treasure of grace has already been given. Does your face light up with joy, with the treasure? And so we put on this treasure that we have in Christ, kindness, humility, meekness. We sing songs not in order to gain the treasure, but we put on because we already have the treasure, and his name is Jesus. So listen, I don't know where you're at what you have going on in your life, what sin struggles you have or don't have, or which parts of this that the Spirit is really bringing up to you. But here's my encouragement to you. You can't white-knuckle yourself to holiness. You can't just, okay, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to sin. I'm not going to sin. I'm not going to sin. I'm not. You're going to sin. And so the question is, how do we put to death? How do we put on? I don't know if I have an answer for that but I know it's not going to be by your effort alone. It's going to be with us. It's going to be coming to your community and saying, I need help with this. Will you walk with me with this? It's going to be praying before you do any action. It's going to be getting on your knees and praying to your God and asking for help. Asking, God, forgive me. Will you forgive me of this? And his response, if you're raised with Christ, is always, you are. You are forgiven. And we will walk with you. We will love you. We will teach each other. We will admonish one another. And we will sing songs together. That in this place, we will declare Jesus has won it all. And he is better than anything else. So my warning to you, if you remove yourself from that, do you really think, how do you think that battle's going to go? How do you think that battle's going to go? We need each other. He's talking to a group of people here, a group of believers. So we walk with each other. Thank you for listening. Renewal Church is located in the center of Bell County, Texas. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. For more information about the mission of Renewal, go to renewalchurch.net.